From the studios of Blue Ridge Public Radio, this is BPR News Presents The Porch. When the paranoia comes, party's over. It's something that I would never wish on my worst enemy. Not every therapist is going to help you. You need to find somebody who jives with you, and I don't think I ever found anybody who jived with me. I've been trying to focus on my 15-year-old son's mental health more than anything, and I would find that I was completely neglecting my own. One year into our shutdown, the impact on our region's artists stretches beyond economics. Some artists say the psychological effects have been as devastating as the financial ones. I'm Matt Pikin, arts producer with Blue Ridge Public Radio, and on this episode of The Porch, we'll speak with artists coping with their mental health through a year of turmoil. Over the next hour, you'll hear the raw and revealing experiences of several local performers and insights from two psychologists who focus on artists and mental health. If you're in need of immediate mental health services, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides free around-the-clock support. That number is 800-273-TALK. That's 273-8255. If love leads to action Chelsea LeBate has a deep history in Asheville as a musician, songwriter, and poet who also teaches the art of songcraft. Over the past year and a half, LeBate experienced psychotic episodes requiring hospitalization. She now lives with her parents in Florida. That's where she spoke with me earlier this month. She began by detailing her mental health journey over the past two years. I had never had any sort of depression or mental health issues my entire adult life. And when they started, I was 39, so an, a year and a half ago. And I just have these larger-than-life, schizophrenic, paranoid episodes that if somebody were to see me, you would probably say, there's a crazy person. <laughs> you know, like full-on talking in different languages, speaking in tongues, not recognizing faces. And they kind of have like an on-ramp where before, before I get paranoid and before I get schizophrenic, I am clairaudient. So I'm just speaking in tongues and gibberish and little weird high voices. I don't remember those. Those are things that uh, people have told me. So I've had three of those episodes and I've been in four mental hospitals for each of those. Were you in Asheville when that first happened? I was in Asheville and I started starting to have a hunch about like which houses there were mischievous things going on in and just like weird buildings downtown where I was like, why is that door painted shut? And nothing that ever got proven, but that was the experience was that I was getting paranoid on behalf of the safety of others. So you had never experienced anything like this until you were 39. Was there any sense or now in in retrospect, can you point to anything that precipitated this or might have tangibly brought this on? I went through a lot of past lives while I was in the first episode, and I never believed in those, but I actually like reenacted them and became who I was in these other lives to the point where it's like it became as real as memory, just like memory in this life. So if that's the truth, and I was beheaded one life, and I was hung another life, and I was, it was always like getting cut off at the throat, which is interesting because I'm, I'm an artist and a musician. 
you know, and even if it's dreams, you know, you can have bad dreams that you don't remember that that all goes into your one little fragile system. And at some point you just have to break out of all of that and break on through (laughs) to the other side. You touched on yourself as an artist, which is, I would think that there's some overlap in terms of your imagination, in terms of conjuring imagery Mm -hmm. in creating your poetry and your music versus this kind of imagery. Can you describe the difference? What you were cognizant of, of those differences? For those who are artists, like there's that moment, like right before you're writing a song line where it's like, you're feeling it coming down the chute, maybe like your, your frequency, you have your, your antenna up and you're just, you're receiving it. You're not necessarily generating it. And that's the difference between like sitting down and maybe generating a memoir or generating something that was based on things that happen versus receiving and having an antenna to the collective stories, to the collective material. And then you get into, you know, other realms. Like I was, I was talking with galactics. I was talking with ancestors, all these things that before I just lived my life as an artist and that's where my boundaries were. It's like, I kind of think of it as like a keyboard, like a piano, right? It's like, I had maybe four octaves of communication. And then this was just like, well, guess what? We're going to get all 88 keys now. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa. And, and that's, that's where the hospitalizations come into play because suddenly you have 88 keys when maybe you've been playing, you know, in the middle C range for a couple octaves and your vessel can't take it. Your vessel can't harness all of that range and all of those colorations and all of that beauty and all of that horror. It all comes together at once with psychosis. And the beauty is that you do get to touch it, you know, even, you know, like when you're a kid and you don't really know how to play the piano and you just like run your, you want to run your fingers all the way down and run your fingers all the way up. Like that's, that's what psychosis felt like to me. It's a matter of overcoming the, the lunacy factor of it and awakening into, wow, now I, I've seen all this color. You know, I've experienced, I've heard, I've tasted all this color, even (laughs) the senses start to step in for one another, right? And so then the goal is to come back and be able to treat it just like you're sitting there writing a memoir, right? Just like you're, you know, and, and not be in a place of complete disarray. Demonic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, tell me, I, that's a really interesting way you describe the differences. But I would think that some artists would see that expanded color palette as I now I have new things to draw on for my art. It sounds like you were very aware that this wasn't normal. This wasn't mere inspiration. This, this You were aware of that, right? No, I didn't. I didn't want to admit that I suddenly had psychic abilities. I didn't want to say that that feels like something somebody else would tell me that I have. And I didn't want to say that. I was communicating telepathically. I don't know. I just wanted to be an artist, you know, but this is different. So I didn't want to, I guess, like claim that or add that to my palette. I was happy enough as I was. How did you become aware or accept and absorb that this is an abnormality within you that needed to be addressed? Great question. Unfortunately, I just had to get hospitalized because There's the mania, and I think there can be healthy mania. And other artist friends, you know, I talked to them about that. So it's maybe like you stayed up for two nights straight painting, right? Because because the the lightning is there. The lightning's moving through you. You're there. You've got the electricity, whatever. But then you know you can't do that for eight days. Like you have to eat 
and you have to maybe sleep for a day or whatever, but, but you ride the lightning and that's what mania is, is like, it's a surge of electricity and I'm still new at navigating when that surge comes through, how to harness and capture what it is that I want from that experience when it gets bad. And this was like, you know, all these times that I had these episodes, I wasn't on the right medicines. And so I wasn't on an antipsychotic. So I would really get into this place where then I would get paranoia. And when the paranoia comes, party's over. There's no making art. There's no, you know, oh, this will make a great song. It's ugly. It's dark. It's something that I would never wish on my worst enemy. And that's when I had to go to the hospital. Did you voluntarily institutionalize yourself or did it take others in your life to impose that on you? The first one they took me, they came and found me. I was in my house in Asheville and I was fighting a great battle. And Joseph Campbell talks about this. Stanislav Grofs talks about this, right? So it's this mythical battle that I had been fighting for maybe three or four days in my home, hadn't left, hadn't eaten, hadn't drank, like didn't have any sense that I had a body even. And my neighbors put it together along with my parents that I was missing. So they came to my house, they sent the Asheville police out for a wellness check and they found me and I, I was in the back room and I had nothing on. The cops came and found me and then a beautifully patient social worker helped to get me out of the house in a way that wasn't traumatic. So I wasn't put in a straight jacket. I wasn't, you know, even though I was psychotic, he helped to get me out and to talk me out of there. And then afterwards, my neighbor showed up from next door and she was like, Chelsea, you can go with me now and I can take you. Or if they have to take you, it may not be fun. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew I had won the battle and I knew that I was with my neighbor and that I trusted her and I should do whatever she said. Where were you brought and what happened once you were institutionalized? I was taken to Mission Hospital and I think they hooked me up to some IVs because I hadn't eaten and hadn't drank. I was like the color of a school bus, evidently. I was jaundiced. Then there's only X amount of facilities in the state where they can take you for longer term care. And I got taken to a facility out in Hickory, a Duke facility, and was there for, I mean, I don't know, two more weeks or so. And it's so strange because they never tell you, like, you're in a mental home. Like, I'm kind of in a hospital, but it's not really a hospital. And I was, I was like, trying to put it together. Like, they don't tell you. But I was still in full episode mode. I, I had to go in the, in the padded cell. They had me in a, uh, a room confined to myself with no other people for a while. They couldn't really come up with any reason for why I had suddenly gone from zero to 100. You know? So they were treating you in this very isolated, some might say harsh way in the sense you had nobody that you felt was an advocate for you. What happened during your time there to lead to you being released? Just time. And I lied, you know, they were like, are you hearing voices? And I said, no, I didn't want more injections. They gave me injections. And it's just after, you know, X amount of days of sedating me, I guess they finally decided like, okay, she can be in her family's home, still needing to be watched. But I would then be cared for by my parents at that point. At that point, when you were released, you were brought to Florida? Yeah, I was brought to Florida. So that was the first of what you said were three episodes that have happened to you in the past year and a half plus. Obviously, there are time in between each episode when you're not having these psychotic events. Tell me what would happen in your experience to 
bring them on. That's what we're still trying to figure out because I'll feel fine. And then suddenly I start spinning out and they say to look for your triggers, right? You know, your triggers can be this, your triggers can be that. How long do these episodes last for you? They're months. I mean, it's like the revving up is maybe a month or so, but then the actual episodes are maybe two weeks where I'm feeling like that heightened sense of communication that I'm communicating with spirits and galactics and having this ongoing conversation. And it just feels like my nose turned on, you know, it's like, imagine if like you didn't smell and suddenly you're like, your nose turns on and then you're like, oh, well, I guess this makes sense that I could be able to do this. So that's what it feels like. It just feels like these other senses turned on that are in the family of the creative arts. It's that same antenna. It's so fascinating because I'm like, yeah, I've, I've been doing this my whole life, but not really. I mean, there are songs that I fully channeled. Are there any lessons you've come to know now in your experiences with these episodes and the revving up for you to recognize the difference between, oh, here is creative inspiration and, oh, this is revving up to what is not going to be a, a great time for me? Or is it all still a mesh for you and that you don't know you're in the revving up process versus the creative process? Until, yes. it's too, until it's too late. It's too late. That's that's where I am right now. Like the first three were like, it's just too late because it happened so quickly. And or because the revving up process is not really, is so slow and it feels so well integrated that it doesn't feel like a threat. It just feels like, oh, now I'm awake. Oh, you know, my senses are turned on. These senses, like suddenly I can dream. Suddenly I can imagine. Suddenly I can receive messages that are going to help me to be healthy and whole. How have your experiences in the past year and a half to almost two years had any impact at all on your artistry or your desire mm -hmm. to create? I've faced my own mortality multiple times in the past year and a half, but hands down, I'm addressing death point blank. Like it's there in the lyrics, it's there in the words in a way that like, I'm not running from it and I'm not, not mentioning it. Right. And same with, with going nuts. Like one poem I have is called madness and it starts off with me taking off my dress and leaving it on the floor because I know I'm about to be reborn or I'm going to die. And I want to cross over with the dignity and with the proper dress of someone who is doing that. So you're still making music. You're still writing poetry directly informed by these experiences that you're having. Absolutely. And also you're still in the throes of this, it seems like. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you have not discovered nor have you received any sort of medical help beyond certain drugs perhaps to help give you a key to what's happening with you. No, and, and we're just patching it all together. Like even this morning, my mom and I had the psychiatrist list and I have a counselor that's okay. It's just, they want to pathologize everything. You know, it's like a psychosis is medicine. And I don't think anybody has said that before I have. And that's why I'm putting it in the poetry, right? It's like, it, you can go through the files and just rip them up and have them out in front of you. And then you're done. It's a release. It's a process that is holy. I think it's not sustainable, <laughs> Explain that a little bit when you say psychosis is medicine. Well, if your psyche had a junk drawer in it, right? And all that stuff is just like rummaging around. And finally, you just can't take it anymore. And, you know, it opens up 
it needs to be cleaned out. We're going to another place together. And in order to do that, you can understand how to have those releases in a way that doesn't cause severe episodes like I've been having, or you can have the episode and the episode will do it for you, right? I'm not more injured because I've had three psychotic episodes. I'm in a much better place. I'm not afraid of death. I'm so easygoing now. I don't have this big pressure chamber of all this old data. Are you saying that has been a positive to these episodes? Absolutely. And beautiful. I mean, I've, I've come into contact with spirit, the divine, the one, the voice, whatever you want to call it, and had direct correspondence. When I was in the hospital the first time, it was nothing there that was sustaining me. It was the voices that I could hear. And people don't, it's like, oh, you're hearing voices. Oh, injection time. You know, it's like, we all hear voices. If you're an artist, you hear voices. It may not sound like my you know, my voice coming out of my mouth right now, but it's, it's more of an impressionistic kind of communication. You might hear the voice of the way the, the leaves look, or it might be more of a visual voicing, if that makes sense. This is like a call to clarify, can you harness the lightning, you know? And this is what we have in other cultures. We just don't have here. Our culture doesn't have it because we're so, we're voiceophobes, you know? It's like, you can't be hearing that. It's like, well, how did the the wise men find Jesus. You know, they didn't have GPS. <laughs> they followed something. <laughs> are, you, are you saying that for you, the way you want the people around you to handle and treat this is not by institutionalizing you, but to be bumper guards in a way, to make sure you stay within the lane of not harming yourself or other people, but let you experience these episodes of your own volition? I can be manic and not be totally insane right so it's it's the insanity that no i have to go to the hospital i will hurt people i need the meds as of now i would imagine when that happens with you though your grasp on reality isn't clear at all and you must feel that everybody's against you that's that paranoia oh yeah it's bad and when you're in one of those scary places and you think they're against you and you think that the dark side is coming for you, it really is an absolute challenge to, uh, to maintain a level of peace. What would you recommend to people anywhere who either have friends or family who from their vantage are experiencing these psychotic episodes? How should they behave and work and treat their loved ones? Well, one thing which I would love that no one has ever really asked, you know, maybe after they've gone through the episode, ask them what they experienced. You know, did they become Jesus? Were they walking on water? Like, there is some really powerful narrative that I experienced and went through that was holy. I mean, it was beautiful. And no one ever asked me. It's, it just all gets watered down into, did you take your meds today? And are you hearing voices or whatever? I'm impressed and awed that you are creating work in the midst of such a personally calamitous time for you and doing work that is directly drawn from this. What do you intend for that work at all? Is it just for you or are you planning or wanting to put this out into the world? I so want to put it out into the world, like in a bigger way. It's 52 poems. My working title is Corona, and it's long format poem. So I'm really hoping that this will go out 
in a way that can really invite people into the experience. I want people to feel invited into psychosis. Chelsea Labate is also writing music again, inspired by her recent experiences. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch from BPR News. Coming up, we'll hear from an Asheville musician who tells us race plays a role in the help he seeks for his mental health. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch from BPR News. We're spending the show talking about artists and mental health. Melissa Hyman and her husband, Ryan Furstenberg, are better known together as the Asheville folk duo The Moon and You. A few years ago, they wrote a song called The Bottom, addressing the depression a good friend experienced following a breakup. It took a long time to get to the was thinking a lot about someone who's suffering and not get into their head, but to get into like a place where you can empathize and be there for them in a way that is helpful to them. Someone once said that pain or suffering carves deeply into you so that you can become a vessel for more joy or something like that. This image of like when we go through the hard stuff, it makes more room in us to feel the good stuff. It was a sweet dream, a sweetness like garbage in the sun. Part of what being a creative person does for me is it provides me opportunities to explore and understand these experiences and feelings better so that I can then express them in a way that makes others feel less alone and makes me feel less alone. That was Melissa Hyman from The Moon and You talking about their song, The Bottom, a deep cut from the album Endless Maria. Mike Martinez is the vocalist and lyricist for the Asheville ska rock band Natural Born Leaders. The judges hit 
it and I listen to workers pushing pallets. Old school drama with the new school malice. I'm only drinking liquor if I'm drinking at a job. Martinez tells us his battle with anxiety is more than psychological. For him, there's also a racial and cultural component. I began our conversation by asking whether he'd been prone to mental health issues before this past year. I've definitely like struggled with some form of anxiety and depression for most of my life since I was a kid, basically. You know, I, I don't think I knew what to label it as then, but, you know, as a 31-year-old man, now I'm like, oh, okay, that's what was going on, <laughs> you know? That's interesting. So, you know, in retrospect that you had struggled with it, but it sounds like you didn't get any particular help for it. In theory, I did. I, I went and spoke to a lot of therapists. As I'm older, I think now it's it's important to understand that, you know, not every therapist is going to help you. You need to find somebody who jives with you. And I don't think I ever found anybody who jived with me in that respect. Can um, you talk so. about that a little bit? I think that's important. I think a lot of people might hear this and want to get an understanding of what kind of therapist would jive with you and what made these therapists not jive with you? Well, for starters, I think having a therapist that has a similar life situation to you can help them to empathize better with you. And in my particular case, as a black man, I think I wish I had somebody who was approaching it with kind of that attitude. You know, as far as like medically, I think, you know, race does sometimes play an issue in that, you know, or at least shared experience. And I, w I wish I had somebody who could like relate to what I was saying to them back then. And nobody that I had ever related to that. And, and it was a different time, too, you know, where like I think now people are uh, therapists is more inclined to try and empathize with you, you know, versus like in the 90s. They're kind of like, well, like, you know, he's just sad. He'll be fine. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you think also the things that you were talking about with your therapist in the past, were they through a racial lens? Or do you feel that if you had a therapist of color, if you had a black therapist, they might have understood what you were saying without you having to explicitly say some of the things that you're talking about? That's more, yeah, that's kind of more what, what I feel like. I feel like I think I had to explain more. So in which it would make anybody uncomfortable, you know, having to explain a situation, which to me seems typical, but it's hard to relate to in that regard. So in that sense, while there's the mental health and depression end of things, there's also just the social and living context of having somebody who just understands a general daily basis on which you exist. That's a game changer. I found myself a lot of times like having to explain my existence versus like actually working on whatever was going on with me. You know, if I am depressed, it's like instead of like getting to the root of that problem, having to discuss things that shouldn't be necessary. You know what I mean? Honestly, you know, up until, you know, the past decade, I wouldn't have even looked at it from that lens. But now looking back, I'm like, this could have been, you know, a little bit different. Tell me what's changed and what is different for you now than the general level of depression you've had over the past 10 years and been mindful of, but not dealt with on a professional level. What's different now? I guess I've kind of like allowed it to subside and fizzle for years. Like, I don't think I was conscious of my mental health. As far as recently, 
you know, go back a year ago, my life was entirely different. I was doing way completely different things. There's a level of it where like, you know, I felt like I was like on top of the world, you know, like I'm like, we're doing this thing. We're going places. And then, uh, and now I'm stuck at home. (laughs) So talk about how that has played out for you. You know, some Many in the creative fields have said, oh, I've taken advantage of this time to be differently creative or to write in a way. I've had time to do this. And I've had other artists tell me, I can't even get out of bed. How are these other people writing and being creating? That's infuriating to hear. Where are you in this spectrum? I've taken advantage of the fact that I do have the time. Uh, You know, I've been collaborating with different artists. So I've been taking the opportunity to record and write and honestly do a lot of the things that I didn't have the opportunity to do before. But at the same time, like, I think it's different. It's different. I feed off of people and, you know, playing to a room. And previously, like with MBL, we would work out songs live, you know, and then some days like I just I feel like I have a terrible time waking up in the morning or going to sleep at night. You know, I could be manic and up all night and then be like, oh, I guess I should do work. You know what I mean? Or I'll be depressed and yeah. sleeping until three. You know, how have your bandmates and other musicians in town been a source of community for you during this past year? And I know you and your bandmates did gather at various points, you you record, rehearse together, but how important has that community been to you in terms of your own mental health over the past year? Man, uh, I don't think I'd be alive without the community that surrounds me. You know, as as mad as I could get at the world, like to know that there are still people, you know, who you can rely on experiencing the love uh, between friends or the music community or other artists. It's something that is so necessary in my life. I just don't think I could exist without it, man. We all need to feel appreciated and heard and loved, you know? Do you think you've had to open yourself up in ways that maybe weren't as organic for you in the past? I think if you would ask me to do this interview a year ago, I wouldn't have done it. Right before the pandemic hit, I started taking antidepressants and uh, thank God, (laughs) but it's more to help with my anxiety. My anxiety is way worse than my depression, but they fuel each other, you know? Well, that's Um, all mental health. I mean, it's all part of the same package. So it's interesting though. What do you think has changed? You said from a year ago where you wouldn't have talked about this to now where you're open to talking about it. What's changed? So After the doctor suggested that I talk to people, I did start talking to a lot of people about it, you know, just my struggles with anxiety and like what that means to me. It's not something that people are wanting to openly talk about their anxiety levels anyway, publicly. It's not something that's a genuine conversation point. Yeah. And I think that that's what changed. Like having that conversation, I realized how many other people are also feeling or struggling with the same thing, you know, and people that I've known my whole life. And they're like, oh, yeah, I take that same one. And I'm just like, what? This medicine, too? So there's two sides to that coin. There's the effect on you and the effect on your friends and how you view your friends, the people mm-hmm. you talk with. Do you think there was a difference in how you came to see each other through, through these kinds of conversations? We are all to some level experiencing some 
sort of mental health crisis currently. Maybe not everybody, but the vast majority of us are. And I think that through talking about this, people don't have to feel ashamed of it. I feel like I felt ashamed of my depression for years or that it was a joke. You know, I throw it out there as a joke, like, oh, he's depressed. You know what I mean? Like, emo boy. <laughs> but, like, but I think it's important that we normalize it because then we can normalize caring for it, you know? And I think about it in Asheville in particular, like we've lost artists into the double digits over the past year, not from COVID. Mentally, people are doing terrible right now. Not everybody, like I said, but, you know, a lot of us are. And we need support. And that could look a bunch of different ways. It could look like medicine. It could look like talking to your friends. It could look like talking to a therapist. It could look like going to a doctor, you know, or talking to your partner or whatever, you know. I think it's important for people to talk about this kind of stuff. Not everybody's going to be ready for the conversation, but everybody needs to have it. The natural bone leader, bone to be the wildest of creatures. I'm realizing the lifeless features. Dreamer, I've had but speechless. They're like the spit from the bottom of these blood soaked Mike Martinez is the voice and lyricist for the Asheville ska rock band Natural Born Leaders. If you're in need of immediate mental health services, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides free, around-the-clock support. That number is 800-273-TALK. That's 273-8255. The trope of the suffering artist dates at least as far back as 1888, when Vincent van Gogh, reportedly after arguing with the artist Paul Gauguin, cut off a piece of his own left ear with a knife. Many academics have studied this trope. Dr. Krista Taylor has studied those studies. In 2017, she analyzed the scattered research connecting artists with what she terms mood disorders. Her findings challenge and lend context to prevailing stereotypes. Taylor grew up in the United States and earned her undergraduate degree in studio art. She's now at Université Catholique de Louvain in Belgium, working as a postdoctoral research fellow at the Psychological Sciences Research Institute. I actually began doing this research very early in my career. I went in thinking, obviously there's a connection, it's sort of a well-known cultural phenomenon that creativity is related to mood disorders. And I read some papers that pointed out that that's actually not established with research. And the very few studies that have been conducted are actually really problematic in terms of the methods that they've used. Talk about what you did find when you started giving a more rigorous uh, research eye to this phenomenon. I did find that people pursuing occupations within the arts had a greater prevalence of all types of mood disorder, except dysthymic disorder, based on the available research. Assuming that this result does reflect a true sort of phenomenon that creatives are more likely to suffer from the disorders, there are a few different theories that suggest that the cognitive processes related to creativity are enhanced in certain types of disorders or for those who are genetically predisposed to these disorders. But I find these theories problematic for a number of reasons. One issue that I think has not received enough attention is the role of occupational factors. Some of these factors are becoming more common with the rise of the gig economy, like not having a clear career path, which can be very stressful, or even having an irregular schedule, which can lead to circadian rhythm instability, which some research has associated with depression in particular. But there are some factors that are still unique to creatives, like 
the personalization of creative work. So having your work be your primary form of self-expression and self-development, that can open you up to a lot of self-doubt and anxiety. It may not be as problematic for your mental health if you have the resources to deal with these stressors. So what you're telling me, creatives who might suffer from mood disorders, it's not because there's something genetically predisposed within them to have this, but more the circumstances of this profession itself, whether it's it leaves them vulnerable in terms of the expression and the self-doubt coming back at them, irregular hours, economic insecurity, all these external factors you're saying could just as much be a part of this as any genetic disposition. Yes. I don't believe that it is creativity in itself that may be associated with disorders like depression and anxiety. I mean, for one reason, everyday creativity is increasingly being shown to enhance well-being. Suggesting that it is due to genetic factors sort of ignores the fact that creativity is something that is more or less normally distributed in the population. There's nobody who's who's truly not creative and creative success is likely to be influenced by a lot of external factors. So whatever's wrong, it can be fixed by, or at least alleviated through changing external factors. Not that because they are a creative, that it leaves them vulnerable to mood disorders. Yes. I think that As an artist, you may have a mood disorder, but your creativity isn't dependent on the mood disorder. The issue is that I think it's damaging to believe that if you need help and you do seek help, that that is somehow going to be detrimental to your art. And I I think that's the thing that is most damaging about this idea. If you have a mood disorder, then yes, you should absolutely seek help. I don't think that it's all external factors, but I do think that If we paid more attention to the resources that are necessary to maintain good mental health, that we could prevent a lot of these deeper issues. But I think that's true for anyone, not just artists. You just touched on something a moment ago, and I'm glad you brought this up, that some artists believe that whatever leaves them vulnerable to mood disorders also makes them a good artist. And you just said something that really contradicts that thinking. Did any of the research that you uncovered find that artists who do suffer mood disorders connect it to their effectiveness as an artist? Yes, there is some qualitative research of interviews with artists that they they do believe that. Can you elaborate a little more on that? Is that something that is culturally generated? Where does that stem from? I believe so. I think it's a stereotype. I think it's perpetuated through the media, through our interactions with others. It's just, and that's just how stereotypes work. They're communicated through a lot of different channels. And I think that the stereotypes that we have for artists are based on sort of a romanticized notion of art. Within the arts community, there is a lot of sort of niche conforming. So if you want to be seen as a great artist, and that's what you believe afflicts great artists, then I think you're more likely to affect some of those symptoms, but also put yourself in a more vulnerable position to not sort of take care of yourself, to believe that suffering will somehow enhance your art. What do you hope your research leads to? After much more research, 
I would like to develop programs that do help creatives to provide them with the resources to maintain good mental health. Krista Taylor is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Psychological Sciences Research Institute at Belgium's University Catholique de Louvain. We have a link to her research at bpr.org. We'll hear from a local storyteller and performer and a psychologist specializing in an artistic approach to therapy when our program continues after a short break. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch from BPR News. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch. We're devoting this episode to local artists and how they've coped with their mental health over the past year. Barbie Angel writes and performs stories about her life and emcees a variety of stage events in Asheville. She says she experienced many episodes of abuse and abandonment well before adulthood. Her autobiographical play, Death by Sparkle, derives its title from a past suicide attempt. Angel says the pandemic has been particularly trying for herself and her teenage son, who have lived by a strict quarantine since the pandemic started. Angel tells us the lockdown has extended to her creativity. I think between like sexual assaults when I was living on different people's couches as a child and then sexual assaults in this home for children and then being in a place that I couldn't leave until I graduated, all of that really caused a lot of depression, lots of mental issues, lots of suicide attempts, but it's not like an ongoing depression like other folks that I know. As this pandemic carried on longer than anybody had thought or hoped, when did you start noticing your own sort of spiral? I've had many spirals. You and I did an interview in April of uh, last year, and it was about a month in. And they were doing really strict lockdowns around the country. And a friend of mine in Illinois committed suicide because he just couldn't handle the lockdown. And I felt like... Part of my experience in the children's home was helping me to kind of get through that, being told what to do and having to stay in one place kind of thing. Shortly after that, I started to realize, well, with that, I had an end date and I started to get really depressed then. So probably about May was the first big depression. And then I've been trying to focus on my 15-year-old son's mental health more than anything. And I would find that I was completely neglecting my own. Over that summer, more and more friends and and people I knew dying of COVID. And I now have three friends that definitely died of suicide and potentially five because there's two that they've never said how they died. And that's a pretty common thing that, you know, folks don't want to talk about, which I think is harmful personally. Are these friends also Um, in the arts? Yes. It's all musicians, artists, one photographer. Tell me how that affected you beyond the sadness of losing your friends. You seem to be in hyper quarantine. I mean, you're taking it very literally a quarantine. Can you describe your own rules and standards for what you're doing and not doing? My son and I are completely quarantined. We don't go anywhere. You know, I haven't been in a business since March of last year. We don't get takeout. We don't go to restaurants. We don't go to parks or any place that there's other people. We do go on drives and we try and spend time outside if it's nice. We've had people maybe probably six or seven times in the last 11 months that have come over and sat on a very large open porch. But that's been more and more rare. 
I don't know if it was depression or anxiety. I just was like completely overwhelmed. And I went offline for about two months, like October and November, I think it was, and just cut everybody off. Somebody very sweetly, not complaining, but somebody sent the police to my house to see if I was okay. That was, I want to say, maybe beginning of November. Obviously, you were concerned around the pandemic and all of that and having anxiety around that. Were you ever concerned that you were reaching certain depths of depression and anxiety that you were not able to control or handle? No. And that was, that was why I got offline because I was starting to feel that because it's not just the constant notifications. It's all this spewing of hatred and the pandemic is fake and masks don't do anything and people jumping on you about politics. It was stressing me out more and more and making me more the politics. It was making me more angry all the time. And so that's why I you know, stepped away. It was just too much. Over the summer with all of the Black Lives Matter protests, I think I also damaged my mental health quite a bit watching, you know, hundreds of videos of people of color being injured or abused or killed mostly by police, but, you know, also being harassed by folks. And I think that it just was too much. How creative have you been in the past year? Surprisingly not, not creative much at all in the ways that I normally am. I've been working on this play that this time last year, I was asked to do this Grimm's fairy tale for Monford. And, you know, it's something that a year ago, I mean, it's a one act, you know, we're talking 30 to 40 minutes. It should have been done, you know, but I have this pandemic depression, you know, that makes every tiny little edit seem overwhelming. And so normally all this free time, I would be so prolific. Instead, I have this just anxiety and think that nothing I do is any good. Just the self-doubt is pretty overwhelming. You know so many artists in this community. Has a community of artists here or elsewhere, has that been of some commiseration for you? Has that happened for you? It's weird. I feel very forgotten at this point in my isolation And only just in like the last week have people reached out to me. I think it's a kind of a wave of things that people are going through where they all of a sudden feel like doing something and talking to people and then months go by and they don't feel like it. And I just feel like one of those people that, you know, has been forgotten by everyone, which then I'll talk to people and be like, no, that's impossible. No one could forget you. Yeah, I've talked to a few people on the phone and we've commiserated about how we're not feeling like creating. And when you see artists out there, whether it's on Facebook or Instagram and elsewhere, who are posting their work and being out, what's the effect on you? You kind of hate them, don't you? Well, I'm asking you that. I revere people like that that are able to do that. And I, I wish that I could learn how they're doing it. I will have to do something. It will be out of necessity. You know, I I redid my laundry room. That was a big project that I've been working on that I repurposed things and I painted things. And it was the most creative I was through the entire time. And I felt good because I wasn't doing something super creative, but I was, I was painting things and making things look pretty and, you know, and that was good. And then I'll spend two months just sitting on my couch watching, you know, Gilmore Girls and just barely able to get up. 
Have you sought out counseling for any? I have in the past. There's a whole section in my play about it. But every time I would go see a therapist, they would listen to my story and then they would stop me and go, but you're a writer. So you know what would be really good is if you wrote about this. But like most folks who are working class, there's no way to afford therapy. I can't afford a dentist. So therapy is just, it's not an option. Do you feel like you have evolved in terms of how you cope and weather your bouts of depression? And are you dealing with it better now than you were, say, in the fall and summer? I think the weirdest thing that has happened as far as my evolution of this has concerned is that I'm like an extroverted introvert. I need that energy from people, you know? In the times that I wasn't out performing on stage, I mean, if I went into a grocery store, I was making the clerk laugh or the people in line laugh or whatever, you know? Perhaps maybe one of your main ongoing sources of depression is just you haven't had those outlets. Oh, yeah, definitely. I really enjoy making people laugh and think and giving something to folks. And it's not really even as much for what I get out of it. Like I'm making their day a little bit better. When you hit the skids in your state of mind, do you tell yourself, I know this is only temporary. I will pull out of this. Or do you swim in that despair? I'm fortunate to have my son because I know that I have to pull out of it because I know that I have to take care of him. You think about us and I mean, we're much older. I mean, we're good looking still, but we have decades of experience of a life that wasn't this. And then my son is 15. You know, he has like maybe the last five years of knowing a life that wasn't this. And I don't know what to tell him for his future. This is going to sound bad, but I'm kind of glad that I was depressed enough to attempt suicide when I was younger because it makes me understand now how it was that I felt then, you know, and that this is going to change. This is going to improve. Barbie Angel is a writer and performer who hopes to stage her autobiographical play through Asheville's Magnetic Theater sometime in the coming season. Earlier in the program, we heard from Dr. Krista Taylor, who has studied the connections between artists and mood disorders. Artists and others considering therapy might gain some insight from Dr. Eileen Serlin, a psychotherapist in the San Francisco Bay Area who specializes in dance therapy. Dance is just one of many artistic and creative alternatives to traditional psychological counseling and psychiatric intervention. For some, Serlin says such approaches might just be the key to unlocking otherwise jammed doorways. All the arts together, dance, music, painting, poetry, are under a label called the creative arts therapies. You can look them all up separately. You can look up music therapy or art therapy, or you can look up, they they have a consortium called the creative arts therapies. And then there's a third option called the expressive therapies, which happens to be more popular on the West Coast, where they use all the arts together. The belief is that naturally they go together and they amplify each other. If you go from, you know, singing to moving, they're all woven together in the expressive therapies. Can you give me a little overview of your dance therapy practice? A dance therapist is a blend. We use the arts to work with people. 
the arts are a modality, not the subject. So I use movement as a language. Verbal communication is only one line of communication. There's a lot going on. We call it below the surface or nonverbal communication. Sometimes I just observe the way somebody walks in the room, the way this is a whole lot of information we get about people. And we were trained as dance therapists. Everybody has a movement profile, just like we have a personality. Number two, we use the movement as an intervention. The third assumption is that a lot of people's emotions and so forth, and I work a lot with trauma people, are not available to the conscious mind. The body has gone numb. So movement awakens a lot that if you're just talking are not available to many of us. How does someone know which of these is right for them? And does an artist or a creative, should they approach it from their own specific discipline? Meaning if they're in dance or in theater, should they look for therapies that are already rooted in those realms or is that not so important? Great question. It's not so important. It works both ways. On the one hand, yes, start with what's ever comfortable for you. Some people, if you say the word dance, people go, I can't dance. Immediately, you know, all our worst nightmares of being, you know, eight years old and pushed into a dance class or something come up. Same thing with art, actually. You know, I can't draw a straight line. We feel that everybody's a dancer or an artist. Some people use, so we, ha- we call it dance movement therapy because some people use movements of everyday life, the way you walk in the room, whether you shake hands or not, there's always movement going on. We don't want to scare people. But the other thing is dance has a long history in healing. I'm really interested in ceremonial dance, weddings, ritual dances. I work a lot cross-culturally. And the arts talk to people cross-culturally. I've worked with Syrian refugees in Jordan. I do belly dance with the women. So it's, it's a question of making a relationship with people. And the arts, you don't need verbal language. And if you know their culture, there's an immediate connection. Arts are universal language. So that's our starting place. So while these therapies are certainly open to anyone, regardless of whether they work or dabble or tiptoe into the creative fields in their own lives, I would imagine professional performing artists, visual artists, literary artists, they would maybe have more faith in these kinds of therapies than traditional talking to a counselor sort of therapies. Am I safe in thinking that that might be the case for many people who are creatives? Absolutely. And the reason I say creative arts therapists is to be a dance therapist, for example, it's a master's program or it's equivalent, which means we get two years of everything from kinesiology and a lot of different ethnic dance styles because this is cross-cultural and culturally sensitive. But we also get group process and how to work with trauma and how to work one-on-one with someone. On a verbal level, when you deal with in a traditional counselor-patient relationship, where tell me what's going on in these 50 minutes that we have, and how do you begin in your practice when there's so much that's piled on your clients? How do you begin to unravel that in a way that is purging and healing for these people? So what do artists have that's unique? that we deal with. One is the feeling of being understood. So just by identifying myself as an artist already forms a bond that they often don't get with a more straight 
therapist who's trying to help them be more practical and make practical decisions. This goes with a controversy, which is do artists have to be like manic depressive? If I lose my madness and my fear of being a normal person, don't take away my wildness and my madness. And do I need my madness? You know, uh oh, I don't have any wild mood swings anymore, but I don't feel anything. And what happened to this uh, fountain of creativity? So this A, that artists tend to, and we understand that. I can be very dramatic. I, you know, so I understand that that comes with the territory. And the other that an artist will understand is the need to express oneself. There's a certain drive that some non-artists don't have the same drive. Creative self-expression for artists is a particularly important, and you don't want to be put in a box by a therapist. Therapists have often been viewed as sort of tools of the establishment to get people to behave better or to fit in. And artists don't want to fit in necessarily. They don't want to be with somebody who's always going to push them to do that. Dr. Eileen Serlin is a psychotherapist in the San Francisco Bay Area specializing in dance therapy. If you're in need of immediate mental health services, Hope for NC is a 24-hour crisis management line through the North Carolina Department of Health and Human Services. That number is 800-587-3463. Also, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline provides free around-the-clock support. That number is 800-273-TALK. That's 273-8255. We'll have links to that and other mental health resources at bpr.org. There's so much more we could address on this topic. We'd like to hear your thoughts on this program and if you work in the arts about your experiences dealing with mental health issues. You can email me personally at mpeiken, that's M-P-E-I-K-E-N, at bpr.org, or you can comment on our Facebook post for this episode. You've been listening to The Porch from BPR News. I'm Matt Pikin. Thank you for joining us.